sermon this text is Luke 19, 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Or good servant, sir. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, and slaughter them before me. The Gospel of the Lord. What does God expect of you? That's the question for today. I've been asking questions at the start of these sermons lately. I don't know if I'll do that forever, but it's just a kick that I'm on. But that's the question today. What does God expect of you? What does He want from you? What should you be doing? We read passages like this to talk of Christ's return, uh, in a certain sense, judgment, um, looking at our lives, and we automatically want to know, okay, what's he going to expect? What's the standard by which I'm going to be judged? In past weeks, we've been talking about who Jesus is, about what he came to do. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He came to seek and save the lost. We've talked about the way the lost received that salvation. We've seen it like the tax collector who cried out, Sinner, have mercy on me. Receive it like the, the infants that were brought to Jesus, completely dependent on the one who cares for them. We receive it again like the blind beggar who simply cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. We receive it. We do not earn it, achieve it, purchase it, or deserve it. Jesus paid it all and received salvation by the grace of God, through faith alone, apart from works. And yet, we also know that works are not optional. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It gets to work. We 
saw that with Zacchaeus last week, right? Jesus called to Zacchaeus. Jesus declared that he was coming to stay with Zacchaeus, befriended Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus joyfully received Jesus. And then Zacchaeus bore fruit, both of repentance and generosity, overflowing. Read that and read you know, how he restored fourfold and gave away half of all, his, all of his possessions and wonders. Do we have to give away half of our possessions? Is there a certain level that we need to achieve? The order, by the way, is crucial in the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus calls us, walks into our lives, receive him with joy, and in joyful response to receiving Christ, we get to work. But what does that work look like? How much work is required? If Jesus gave us work to do, if he's going to assess our work when he comes back, what is he going to expect? What does God want from us as Christians? Well, the parable that Lauren just read for us, parable of the ten minas, that's a unit of currency, we'll explain later, it's not a bird. Um, the ten minas here, it speaks to those questions. Just as a general roadmap, I'm going to look at three kinds of people that we see in the parable. Fairly simple. There are the fruitful servants, there is an evil servant, and then there are outright rebels. And we'll look at each of those, but not necessarily in that. Before we do that, we should look at how Jesus sets up the parable. And before we do that, we can look at why uh, Jesus tells the parable. Can we get the scripture on the screen there? There you go. All right. In verse 11, two reasons that Jesus says this parable. It's, it's always handy when Luke, the author, tells us uh, what the purpose of the parable is. Two reasons. Number one, Jesus is getting close to Jerusalem, drawing near to Jerusalem. And number two, people think that the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's close. He knows what he's going to do there. He's going to die on the Roman cross. He's going to rise from the dead, but then he's going to ascend into heaven, be seated at the right hand of God. He will go to receive the kingdom, and his servants will be left behind. He tells a parable to prepare them for this departure and to encourage them to get to work while he is gone. And they really need to be prepared for this because they think the kingdom is going to appear now. In a sense, we've talked about the kingdom is already there in the ministry of Jesus, but that's not what this means. They think the kingdom is going to appear now, be, be made visible at that moment in all of its fullness, the total fulfillment which won't happen until Christ returns. Until then, his kingdom is not of this world. When he returns, as we read in Revelation, is when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God, of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's what they think is happening now. So, they need to be prepared to be about his business while he's away. To that end, he tells them this parable, which they might not understand at the time, but later they will remember it and take it to heart. And we need to, to take this parable to heart, too, because Christ is still in that far country. He's received the kingdom, he is coming back, and he has given work for each of us to do. So into the parable we go. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
And that setup might seem odd to you and I, but I guess this is a thing that happened. For example, Herod the Great, uh, who we read of early in the book of Luke, he received uh, the, the kingdom. He was kind of a puppet king of the Roman Empire, uh, but he received this kingship from Roman general Mark Antony in 40 BC, and he had to make a trip to, I don't know, wherever Mark Antony was at the time, hanging out with Cleopatra or something, I don't know, but uh, he, he had, no, that wasn't, anyway, I don't know, I don't know history. Um, anyway, Herod had to go see Mark Antony to receive this kingdom. So this was a thing that happened. There are other examples, they would have been familiar with the story. So while he's gone, he puts ten servants in charge of one mina each. Uh, a mina is about a hundred days wages for what you might think of as a laborer, kind of a blue-collar employee back then. It's not considered a huge sum of money, but it's just big enough for the parable to make sense, just big enough that someone might try to do business with this. As far as I can tell, there's no hidden meaning behind the number of servants or the, the amount of money in this case. It's just setting up a parable. The man who will be king goes away, leaves the servants to do business on behalf. Meanwhile, some of these citizens, uh, get the impression it's all of the citizens here, uh, they do not like him. They hate him. They don't want him to be king. They're not happy that he's nobleman over them, apparently, and they sure as heck don't want him to be king, so they send some representatives to petition the emperor or whoever and say, we don't want this man to rule over us. So thus begins our story. Parallels to Christ have already hinted at. Probably obvious, Christ is going to die and ascend, rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, be seated at the right hand of God. In so doing, he takes up the throne, the throne of all creation. And he also leaves his servants, his disciples, you and me. He leaves us work to do. Meanwhile, there are people who oppose Christ as king, don't want him to rule over them who actively oppose his rule. And as the parable progresses, we will see Christ's response. Of the three kinds of people I mentioned, we're going to start with the rebellious citizens, because we just mentioned them, because they're kind of the easiest to understand. What kind of work are they doing? Uh, well, they're consciously, actively working against the king. And Jesus tells us their fate at the very end of the parable, in fairly stark terms here, uh, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Again, our own political culture and history makes it hard for us to read this. Our country rejected monarchy, rejected a king in favor of democracy, and you won't catch me complaining about that. Um, but because of that, we might tend to say, well, if these citizens didn't want this king, didn't they have every right to petition and, and to reject him? But. This parable was told before the Enlightenment. They just didn't see it that way at the time. Even in our country, uh, you can be put to death for treason, right? And that's how people would have seen this attempt to undermine their king's authority. Response wouldn't have surprised Jesus' hearers. More to the point, this is ultimately not about made-up parable guy. This is about King Jesus. There are those who reject Jesus as king, don't want him to rule over them. They will do whatever they can to work against his kingdom. If I can be allowed to sort of, I don't know, riff or expand on the parable a little bit, I would imagine these rebellious citizens would make the servant's job that much harder, don't you? I mean, how do you do business in the name of a nobleman when his citizens hate him? 
You notice it says his citizens, again, without qualification. It's kind of the impression everyone hates your pastor, and you're supposed to do business in his name. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not known for my business savvy, but I would think that'd be bad for business. Well, the world hated and crucified Jesus, and we're supposed to go and make disciples. Does that ever make our mission difficult? I think this is why Jesus includes them in this parable, includes the opposition, so that we know. Well, we know some things about how Christ views this. It's nothing new. The world opposes the reign of Christ. It's how it was in the first century world. It's no surprise that we encounter it in the 21st century world. Jesus taught us to expect it. And as I see it, there are two points of encouragement for us as we face opposition. The first is simply to know that when Jesus comes back, he will deal with his enemies. It's not his servant's job to slaughter them now. We're to focus on the work that he gave us to do. That's a positive work of building the kingdom of God, not a negative work of tearing our enemies down. To keep the focus on our actual mission and the work that we're given to do, we need to keep in mind that Christ is the judge, not you and me. Every act of opposition the church endures, whether it's mocking or slander or violence or even to the point of, of death, to the point of martyrdom. Jesus himself is the one who will bring those things to light and bring those things to justice. By the way, some persecution he brings to justice on the cross. Think of Paul who had persecuted the church, thrown Christians in prison. Those sins against the church were covered by the cross of Christ. The rest he will deal with in judgment when he returns. And in the meantime, you and I can trust judgment to him and love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us as he taught us to do. It's the first point of encouragement. Christ is the one who deals with this. The second is that the king's enemies fail, don't they? They fail miserably. They can't prevent the return of the king. There is a certain, it's almost a, a nonchalance, I guess. I don't know how else to put it. When you go from verse 14 into verse 15, the verse 14, you hear about this delegation they're sending, and you might be wondering, yeah, what's going to happen with that? Uh, are they going to succeed? Uh, but the next verse is just, anyway, uh, he returned, having received the kingdom. The parable continues as if there never was any question whether he received the kingdom. Of course he received the kingdom. What did the empire think of the delegation they sent? Why did it fail? Did someone speak up in his favor? We're not even told. It's like it's inconsequential. It doesn't even deal with it. His coronation was a fait accompli, as the French say. Uh, I always wanted to preach in French, so now I can say I have. <laughs> a foregone conclusion, I guess. His enemies were just spitting in the wind. This was always going to happen. Think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. The way that Hebrew word in Psalm 2, anointed, is the word Messiah. The Greek word for it is Christ. The rulers take counsel against the Lord and his Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, 
my holy hill. People will reject Jesus as king. King, he remains. There will be people who oppose our mission to spread the gospel of the kingdom. He who sits in heaven. Though this world with devil's filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And we see that promise fulfilled in the next group of people, which we'll discuss now, the, the fruitful servants. There are two fruitful servants, of course, in our text here. There we go. The first one comes in verse 16. The summarize says, you know, Lord, your mind has made ten, ten minus more. That's a thousand percent increase in the context of opposition. I would say that's pretty good. Again, the opposition didn't keep the assets of the king from growing. And the king says, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. What? Granted that the tenfold increase is pretty incredible. It shows that he's managed this one mina. Well, it's still kind of a leap to go from a slave in charge of one mina to governor over ten cities. The next guy, you know, only gets five, and the reason we say only five, the reason that's not impressive to us is we just saw a guy get ten. If we only knew about the five, we'd still think that's impressive. It's still quite a return on the investment. Still quite a jump from very little to five cities. So yeah, I'd say the servants who actually set themselves to their master's business are able to succeed despite the citizen's rejection. But this is where we get back to our opening question. How much work is required? How much fruit do you need to bear? When Jesus comes back, what is he going to be looking for? What does he expect? One thing we can say for sure is that Jesus does not expect us all to be on the same level, however you might measure that. The parable could strike us very differently if there were only the ten minus servant, right? We might be tempted to think that a tenfold increase, however you would calculate that, is what's required. The only two options would be, on Judgment Day, a tenfold increase or a zero increase. But the fact that there are different levels of fruit in the parable, and both levels are accepted, tells us that maybe the idea of measuring up to a certain specific bar is off-base to begin with. I don't know how we'd even discern where somebody measures up and how to compare anyway. We all have different gifts. We come at this discipleship thing from different angles and backgrounds. He is someone who prophesies or casts out demons or performs miracles. Is that person going to be higher up than someone who welcomes strangers, feeds the hungry, cares for the sick? We might be tempted to think so, but in Matthew 7, Jesus says there will be people who did those very things, did miracles, cast out demons, prophesied, but didn't know him. And in Matthew 25, he says others would be surprised to learn that when they cared for the sick, fed the hungry, welcomed the stranger, they were serving Christ himself. We don't see things quite the way God does from our perspective. I think that's why Paul tells the Corinthians, I don't even judge myself, do not pronounce judgment before the time. 
Before the Lord comes, who will bring things to light, now hidden in darkness, and disclose the purposes of the heart, then each will receive his commendation from God. So the New Testament, Paul included, does teach that Jesus will assess how each of us has managed the gifts that he's given us, but the point is not for us to stress out about how we might measure up or compare to somebody else or, or some arbitrary standard. The point is to encourage us simply to stay focused on what he's given you to do. That's what is required. Not a certain amount of increase, which you can't really measure anyway, but just doing what God has called you to do in your life and the gifts that he's given you. Because God's the one who's going to give the increase anyway. To put that another way, the main point of the parable is not found in the contrast between the ten minus servant and the five minus servant, but in the contrast between the two who are faithful and fruitful and the one who the master calls a wicked servant. Two fruitful servants, different job performances, but the master is pleased with both of them. So whatever gifts you've been given, whatever opportunities you have, wherever God has placed you, whatever God has laid on your heart, stick to that and don't worry about outperforming the next guy. The kingdom of God is not a place where you need to worry about racing to the top. And don't be discouraged if you think you're behind, if your gifts aren't as glamorous or impressive as the next guy. We, we tend to look at you know, some God's gifted somebody in uh, preaching and teaching. They must be higher up than somebody who's gifted in, in serving. And, you know, I've, there are people here who are gifted in serving that, that I very much look up to faith. You may be surprised to find out from heaven's perspective how much good you actually did. Just a, a quick sidebar before we get to the wicked servant, I guess I could skip over this, but I won't. Um, you might wonder about the idea of degrees of eternal reward. It's common hear this teaching that uh, when we get to heaven, we'll have greater or lesser rewards depending on how we did in this life. Uh, and this parable is used to, to support that. I have some misgivings about it, I'll confess. Not necessarily that it's wrong, but there are ways that the idea, I think, has been used wrongly. So I... I I will say I don't necessarily think that the idea of degrees as a reward is taught as clearly or strongly as, as some people make it out to be. You've got the 10 minus here and definitely two levels, which certainly opens up the possibility. But again, the main point of the parable is not try to earn more minus, but don't be a wicked servant. So I, don't, I also don't want to over-interpret a parable. Um, you've also got Matthew's parable of the day laborers, right? Master goes out and hires people at different times of the day and pays them all the same. People who started at 9 a.m. get the same as people who started at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The first group complains. The master says, look, well, I paid you what you and I agreed on. Well, I want to be generous. What's that to you? It's no business of yours. So I want us to remember, by way of encouragement, that anything we get at this grace. God saved us so he can pour out immeasurable riches of grace upon us in the age to come. To paraphrase Ephesians 2.7. And I ultimately don't know what that looks like for each of us. There may be degrees of reward in some sense. There may be not. It may be that it's hard to compare. My main concern, though, is if we're not careful, we can almost smuggle a works righteousness attitude back 
into the gospel. We're saved by grace alone, we get that. We don't trust that grace alone will motivate people to lead godly lives. So we follow it up with do more good works to earn a better seat in heaven. You don't want to end up spending eternity in the cheap seats. So I'm hoping to work my way into the VIP section, something like that. That's the kind of thinking I don't want to stir up. It is right, let me be clear, it is right to take comfort in the truth that Jesus will repay each of us for whatever we have suffered or given up to follow him. It is right to serve Jesus in hope of hearing those words, well done, good servant, hoping in hope of receiving all his promise to us. And if that means degrees of reward, fine. What's not fine is serving Jesus in hopes of coming out better than the guy next to you, or in fear of suffering the eternal regret of economy class heaven. Immeasurable riches of grace in the ages to come, not just for rock stars and celebrity pastors, but everyone who receives Christ by faith. That's all I'm saying. But not for the third kind of person, the wicked servant. We hear his story beginning in verse 20. He hands the master back his mina, which he had hidden in a handkerchief, wrapped it up in a cloth, and done precisely nothing. I'll put my cards on the table now and say, I don't believe the servant, the servant. Well, that's, that's telling. The servant. I put my cards on the table before I thought I would. That's what I think of it. Uh, I don't think he represents a servant, <laughs> simply a, a Christian who's missing out on rewards. Some people do argue that's the situation, because it doesn't specifically say that he's slaughtered along with the uh, rebellious citizens. Against that, though, uh, the master calls him wicked, you wicked servant, wicked or evil. That's strong language. Uh, also, in this very similar parable of the talents, which you find in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, it's clear there that the fruitless servant is condemned. He's cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not economy class heaven. That's hell. That's not just less reward. And in Luke, he has everything taken away from him. He's left with nothing. The master says, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus actually made a similar statement back in Luke chapter 8. It's Luke 8, 18. The context is some of the explanation of the parable of the sower. The contrast is the difference between genuinely hearing and receiving the word and bearing fruit versus only superficially receiving it and failing to bear fruit because there's no actual root. The word is taken away where it was never truly received. So the minus is taken away from the servant because he never really received it. All signs point to that this wicked servant is L-O-S-T lost. He represents someone who on the surface appears to be a follower of Christ, but it's only on the surface. There's no root, so there is no fruit. And this becomes, uh, comes into focus when we look at his excuse, which is in 
verse 21, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Question to ponder, does that accurately describe the master, or Jesus for that matter? The servant, he seems to think he's caught in this dilemma. As one commentator explained it, he thinks, if I do business and lose money, he'll demand that I cover the loss. But if I do business and make money, he'll just take it for himself. He reaps where he did not sow. I did the sowing, he's going to do the reaping. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, points out, this is completely false. The issue is the servant doesn't know his master. We just saw this same master install two slaves as governors over 15 cities between them. He graciously rewards those who are faithful to him. That is clear as day by the time the wicked servant starts making his excuses. And this excuse is really insulting. It seems to boil down to this. I didn't do the job you gave me because you're a jerk. I didn't think it would benefit me. I'd lose either. I'd lose money. Either way, either I lose money or you gain money. So I just took that mina and I wrapped it up in a hanky like an old booger, and here it is. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't that kind of handkerchief, I guess, probably, but I had to say booger to balance out fatal complete earlier. Hopefully, so you'll pardon my French. But my point is this is an insulting view of the master, and it's a wrong master. master doesn't say, you're right, that's me. What he says is more like, if that's what you think of me, then I will judge you by that standard, is how I'm reading his, his words here. If that's how you saw me, you should have given this to the bank so it would collect interest. You had a false idea of how I'd be judging you, and you didn't even do right by that standard. So my read on this is that the master has exposed the excuse for what it is. It's an excuse, a rationalization for why he didn't get to work. And that rationalization is just a, sim uh, a symptom of a deeper problem. That deeper problem is he just didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do his master's work. At heart, he's no different than the citizens who explicitly rejected his authority. He's rejected it too. Maybe he's not actively working against it. Maybe he's part of the master's staff, part of the master's organization, but at the end of the day, he's no servant of the master either. It doesn't serve him. A real-life example in Jesus' own day might be Judas Iscariot. He was one of the twelve disciples, and he talked a good game about wanting to help the poor. But if you remember the circumstances when he said that, which, by the way, was something Jesus himself valued, helping the poor, but Jesus said it because he kept the money bag and wanted to skim some off the top, right? And in the end, that's what he chose to serve, instead of Christ, was money. So this is really a warning for all of us. You can be part of the organization, so to speak, part of, part of the church. You can show up and play the part of a follower of Jesus, and you can do that without actually knowing the Master. People can and do attach themselves to Christianity for reasons other than Christ. Like the wicked servant, maybe they're hoping it's enough to merely be affiliated with the king's organization, but they have no interest in the king's business. So they don't actually know the king. Be like Judas, they're serving money. Their real master is power. 
control or politics, respectability, or works righteousness. And by being here, they can earn it. So there's a warning for us in the form of a call to examine ourselves. Are we here for Christ or for something else? Are you here for Christ or something else? And if that's the warning, it's pretty clear that the answer can't be just try harder, just do more work, try to produce more fruit. The answer, if you look at your life and don't see the fruit, look at your life and say, I'm really not doing it. The answer, first and foremost, is to know Jesus. To know him as he truly is, as he's revealed to us in the pages of scripture, as we've seen the past several weeks and months in Luke, he's the Christ, son of the living God, the son of David, the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. The one who justifies the ungodly. The one who died and rose again and sits at the right hand of God. He is the king. To know him truly as he is. Not just a right understanding of his identity either, but to know him personally, to receive him as he truly is. As you trust in what he has done for you, it's only as we receive him that we receive also the power and the will to do what he's called us to do, to put Christ first in all we do. So that's the call to us this morning, to remember who we are here for, to keep that first and foremost in our hearts and in our minds. We're here for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given to us, your people. The grace you have given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that though we were sinners, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Though we were lost, Christ came to seek and to save the lost. To pursue us who had sent him to his death. We thank you that he is risen, that he reigns. Thank you that the gospel is good news, that Christ is King, is Lord of all. And we thank you that in your grace you have not only redeemed us, but you have given to us this ministry to be part of your redeeming work that continues in the world as Christ, through his body, through the church, continues to seek and to save the lost. Father, we also know that in this there is a call to examine ourselves, to look at our lives, to think through our priorities. Are we servants of Christ or are we serving someone else, something else? Father, I pray that you would by the power of your Spirit, help us to judge as best we can, to examine ourselves rightly. That it would ultimately be your Spirit within us that convicts us or assures us. But if there is any of us here who 
has a false assurance and thinks that they are saved simply because they are sitting in these chairs and yet they don't know you, would you open their eyes even now to that fact? Don't let them go on persisting in false assurance. And for anyone here who is dealing with a sense of ongoing guilt that is unnecessary, is afraid, who is genuinely a servant of you, but crushed under the weight of knowledge that they are still sinners, pray that you would once again open their eyes to who they are in Christ. Show them again the, the beauty of the gospel. Help them to judge rightly and maybe through use us as their fellow believers to point out where we do see Christ at work in their lives. Above all, Father, please be at work in us. Send your Holy Spirit to conform us to Christ, to bear the fruit within us, so that through us, your work and your will might be done. Build the kingdom through us. Glorify your name. Seek and save the lost through Christ's first church. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.